I want to explain a little bit about myself before I start. I want to be out of this after that. It's going to be the Lord speaking. I left home at a fairly early age. Not long after I left, I walked away from the Lord. And this message today is not my misunderstanding of it is a lot of why I walked away. And so this is, if anything, reaffirming what I felt when I came back, when the Lord brought me back, his long-suffering. And that's a word you've, if you've been around me very much, you know, I've used that as an attribute. It's one of my favorite characteristics of our Lord. When I was a little kid, when I was real little, that was just a long word. But then it became, after I came back, it became one of my favorite words. Our God is so long-suffering. He never gives up on us. He never just ignores us and, and says, well, he's a sinner, and I guess he chose to walk away. So he let us go. No, no, he's long-suffering. And so this message is, something that I didn't understand when I walked away, but now I do a little more. And uh, I pray that the Lord will be with me today. Let's pray. Once again, Lord Jesus, we come to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will speak through me, that you will speak through me. Put me out of the way, Lord. Let me say nothing but the words that you, that you have for the message. Lord, I, my love for you is, grows deeper every day. And your precious gift of salvation means more to us, means more to me, than anything I've ever known and ever will know. And throughout eternity, we'll praise you for it. So Lord, as, as I, as your humble servant today, I ask that you speak through me and may my message be your message and yours only. I pray this in your precious and holy name, amen. Have you ever been tempted to go to a wedding naked? This was one of my biggest temptations. And I aim today to show you that it's your biggest temptations. If you will, turn with me to, to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, which 
chapter 22, which was a story that Jesus told that is of deep end time significance. This is actually an eschatological story, if you would have it, if you please. That's a word, big word that I've learned that helps to explain things when, when I can't. <clears throat> Matthew 22, starting at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Oh, boy. I told you I was new to this. <clears throat> okay. So here we have the first invitation to the king's wedding, or the first invitation to the marriage of the king's son. It didn't go over very well. Again, he sent forth sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. There's a suggestion here about the old sacrificial system. <clears throat> the sacrifices have been killed. The cross has already arisen. A lonely cross on a public hill. All things are ready. Isn't it good to know that all things are ready once Christ went to that place? But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, which reminds us of the first cousin of this parable, people making excuses. And the remnant, <clears throat> the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. So the second invitation to the wedding of the king's son didn't go any better. And apparently it was post the cross. And you know that people resisted. In fact, it was not a very healthy occupation to be one of the servants taking the message and the invitation. Now we go to verse 7 here. When the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's a prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., many years later. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But they were that which were bidden were not worthy. Now we come to the third invitation. So, but let's pause for a moment and notice this word worthy. Worthy. 
This was something that I heard a lot when I was growing up. We've a long time used that word. I heard my granddad many times in prayer. And again, again, the elders and pastors on the platform. Man, you can almost predict what's coming next. And the Lord, and Lord, when thou comest, grant that we all, without the loss of one, might be worthy Worthy to have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior and so forth. And somehow some of us have gotten the impression that you have to be worthy. And we wonder what that means. Worthy. Are we on a merit system? Are we on some kind of a point system? I grew up with this. You know, this was, unfortunately, many years ago. <laughs> Some of you older folks might remember when it seemed like that that was, you know, you had to be worthy. And I'll go into this a little more, a little later on, but a while back I heard this story. You might call it a modern-day parable. I think it has a major point. This man comes up to the gates of the city of God and he wants to come into heaven. And St. Peter is there and he says, can I get in? Peter says, well, we're on the point system here. You need a hundred points. What can you tell me? And the man says, well, I was a faithful husband for 48 years and loyal Peter says, we'll give you two points for that. Two points? Well, well, I was a deacon in the church, and I did faithful work as a deacon for a number of years. Peter says, we'll give you one point for that. One point? Then he says, well... I worked at community service and helped feed the hungry and the poor. I'll give you a half a point on that one. And about this time, the man says, well, there's no way I'll ever get in there but for the grace of God. And Peter says, welcome in. Welcome in. And as I considered this story, I had to add one little point. And sir, are you willing to give up your three and a half points as well? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And nobody, nobody is getting into heaven on any merit of their own. Evidently you believe that, huh? We are never worthy, only Jesus is worthy. And we sing it sometimes. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Now in the setting of this story, we find very clearly what it was that made him worthy or not worthy. Says the people who were bidden were not worthy. 
It wasn't because they had, they had done or not done something, except that they had refused the invitation. The only thing that made them worthy was to accept the invitation to the marriage of the king's son. This is very significant, really. So then, the king says, verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So these servants went into the highways, and they gathered together as many as they found. Wow. Went into the highways, north, south, east, west, worldwide including the United States, including Illinois, Amen. including Chicago, including West Frankfurt, Benton, including, well, including Thompsonville and the people sitting here. The third invitation to the marriage of the king's son. Gathered together as many as they found both bad and good. Well, that should open the door for all of us, right? Amen. I don't know how many good people there are here today. Maybe we should have the good people stand up. <laughs> all the good people? I don't know. No. And remember... Remember what Jesus said. I came to call. I came to call the righteous. Came not to call the righteous, the righteous but sinners to repentance. Pardon me. Now I put these backwards here for a purpose. But they that are whole or think they are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I don't know how many bad people we have here today. I know of at least one. But whether you're among the bad or whether you're among the good, those who think they're good, we are all invited to the wedding. When I first came back to the Lord and really started to learn about righteousness by faith, I was so excited about the good news, I saw that there was hope for me there. Amen. Uh, and I wanted to shout it from the treetops. And if anyone would question me, I would do my best to cut them down with my ecclesiastical chainsaw. <laughs> What's the matter with you? Don't you believe in righteousness by faith? And my attitude canceled out my message. It's like coming home to my wife and saying, why don't we have more love around here? You know, it destroys what you're trying to say. And one of the things I discovered in the great theme of righteousness by faith is that there are a large cross-section of people that get hostile and angry because when they begin to understand that salvation is by faith alone in what Jesus has done, then they get upset because they see 
that they're not going to get any credit for all their hard work. And these so-called God people, good people, pardon me, pardon me. I'm sorry. These so-called good people can be very harsh. In fact, I've grown to really sort of kind of be leery of good people. Yet Jesus loved bad people. He made a thief his last friend on earth before he passed away. He associated with the sinners. Of all things, he loved those nitpicking good people who wouldn't think of doing anything wrong and who judged everyone below them and were proud Pharisees. Jesus wants everybody there both bad and good. Very interesting. And it says, the wedding was furnished with guests. Jesus not only saves thieves on crosses, he saves Pharisees like Simon, who led Mary into sin. He'll do everything he can to get everybody, which means today, neighbor, There's hope for all of us, wherever you come from. There's hope for every one of us. Well, I suppose we could say the story ended there. But we'd be missing a great truth. In fact, there is more truth per square inch of print in this story than hardly any other story. It's all here. I'd like to just take the position to begin with that the invitation to the wedding represents what the theologians call justification. When Jesus went to the cross, he made it possible for God to be just and to forgive everybody. Romans 3 talks about that. Paul said, God is just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. So God can forgive anybody. God can forgive everybody. And justification, remember, is more than simply forgiveness. It is super forgiveness. In justification, we stand before God as if we had never sinned. Oh, man. Thank you, Bob. Amen. Amen. That has been something that I just, I have to read that over and over. It's such a beautiful promise. You know, in Steps to Christ, it talks about that. It's one of my wife's, well, we started reading that over the phone, having a devotional together before we had ever met in person. We'd been introduced by Pastor John and Angie and I said, I have to have someone that can have a devotion with me in the morning. And she says, me too. <laughs> Bless her heart. You know, and we've been reading Steps to Christ. I don't know how many times we've gone through it, but still, it's, uh, 
It's, it's, tre- it's a treasure, a beautiful treasure. Okay, I'm getting off track. No wonder we can have peace with God. That's amazing, isn't it? We can stand before him. He looks at us and, and it talks about in desire of ages or uh, steps to Christ. He looks at us just like he looks at Jesus. As if we are perfect at that time. Because we are. At that time, we're, we're forgiven, we're sinless. So the invitation to the wedding represents the great truth of justification. And we're all invited to the wedding based on that. We can all come to the wedding. But the plot thickens. Verse 11, and when the king came in to see the guest, oh boy, wow, the king comes in to see the guest. Here you have the pre-advent judgment. You don't have to get in a hassle with the smart people over Daniel 8 or Hebrews or Leviticus 16. You don't have to get into this endless dialogue that some people keep going, trying to show that the pre-advent judgment is simply an Adventist misunderstanding. Jesus taught the pre-advent judgment, and he taught it in few words. He taught it in more than one place. But this is one of the places here. The king comes in to see the guests before the marriage of the king's son. And what did he come in to see? Well, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Well, I suppose we could say, what did he have on? Did he have on his Sabbath suit? His jogging outfit? What did he have on? When you get down to, here's this big word again, the eschatological meaning of this story, you turn to Revelation 19, and you get some major clues. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7, puts this whole story in the time of our day. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. Who is the lamb? Jesus. And who is the wife? The church. Who is the church? We are. His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed. And her was granted to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the linen is the righteousness of saints. 
But the Old Testament prophets made clear that there is only one source of righteousness of the saints. It's the Lord. So we're talking about Jesus' righteousness here. And this is what the bride has on. Now you turn back a couple of pages in Revelation 16 and verse 15. And it says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now you begin to understand what we're talking about. About being tempted to go to the wedding naked. You also have Revelation 3, which takes you down to the end of time. Church called Laodicea. Laodicea is lukewarm, doesn't know it. And the description of Laodicea, the church, up until the short time before Jesus comes, is that they are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. Christ's object lessons, where it says concerning this parable, the man went into the wedding in his common citizen's dress. According to this, I was told by someone I highly respect that I shouldn't say he went to the wedding naked. So based upon revelation, I suggested then he went to the wedding in the common dress of the nudist colony. Okay, I'm going to confess my mistakes and say that he had his common dress on. But when you get to the eschatological setting, including you and me, it's no longer the common citizen dress. The people who don't have on the wedding garment are trying to go to the wedding naked. Are we okay now on this? All right. And I still think that the man, this man tried to get into the wedding naked. Okay, but just for the sake of illustration, imagine, imagine this man. The king looks at him, treats him with a respect that he doesn't deserve. Verse 12. And he saith unto him, Friend, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? In other words, he gave him a chance to explain. <clears throat> now, you know the setting in the time of Christ. It was a custom for a king or a wealthy person. If they put on a wedding for their son, it was a practice to send not only an invitation to the wedding, but a beautiful garment as well. The king went to a great deal of expense to provide not, the only, not only the invitation, but the wedding garment. And this solved a lot of problems. Because if you received an invitation to a royal wedding somewhere in the world today, the first thing that at least half of you would say is, what am I going to wear? 
what am I going to wear? Well, the problem is already solved. It made no difference whether you're from the king's court or you're from the ghetto. You could go to the wedding looking like a millionaire if you accepted the king's garment. And if someone refused to put on the garment, it'd be an insult to the king, an insult to the king's son, insult to the whole kingdom. So I think that if I was the king and I came in and saw this man dressed in his jogging outfit or possibly naked, I think I would have called the security guards and said, let's Let's get him out of here, parallel to the floor, feet first. Let's get him out of here and get the weeping and gnashing of teeth started. But instead, he treats him with the respect that he didn't deserve. Friend, friend, do you have an explanation? Obviously, you got the invitation. Didn't the package arrive? There's some breakdown with the Amazon truck. What happened? Do you have something you want to say? It gave him a chance to explain. And you know what it says there. He was what? He was speechless. He was speechless. Now the reason that he was speechless is he had nothing to say. If he had had something to say, I think he would have said it, wouldn't he? If I was there in that condition and I saw the security guard or the soldiers coming, (laughs) I think I'd have said, hold it. There been some misunderstanding? I don't know. I didn't know about the wedding garment. It didn't arrive, but I I just didn't understand. But he was speechless, which means that he understood all about the garment. He understood about the package. He understood about the provisions that had been made by the king. That's why he was speechless. And I'm going to remind you, friends, that before Jesus comes, everybody is going to understand. I think today few people understand about the wedding garment, few people. I'd like to invite you to study it for yourself and, and read the chapter in the book, Christ Object Lessons, called Without a Wedding Garment. And only then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few choose to accept the call. Now what is Jesus getting at in this story? First of all, this is the pre-advent judgment. What is it the king wants to see? What we have on. Whether we have accepted the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? The righteousness of Christ. 
But in Revelation 19, what righteousness of Christ? Which, as you know, if you've studied it, the righteousness of Christ comes in at least two ways. First of all, in the great truth of justification, the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. We call it imputed. The key to remembering it, and I had a hard time remembering these at first, but I understand them now. Or done, well, I, I can remember them. I'm still learning to understand. God help me. The key to remembering is the middle word put, imputed, or put to our account. That means that the thief on the cross, when he accepts Jesus in his closing moments, can be just as righteous as anyone is ever righteous. Because he stands before God as though he had never sinned. Jesus' righteousness put to his account in heaven. But there's another kind of manifestation of Christ's righteousness. And we call it imparted Again, the key word is in the middle there. The imparted, where it becomes a part of our life. We call this sanctification, where Christ's righteousness becomes a part of our lives. This includes obedience, victory, overcoming. It includes character transformation. You know, if a person, well, many, I'll go on. I don't want to get sidetracked, but a person, I will. If a person claims to be a Christian and it doesn't show, if their character doesn't change, if their lifestyle doesn't change, are they working on sanctification? Are they working on, are they a true Christian? No, it's not us to judge, but that's something we need to remember. Our lifestyle has to follow the path that Christ has for us. Something, okay, which of these is referred to in Revelation 19? Well, if you have the later versions, the New King James, which are more accurate, by the way, here you find out that the righteousness of the saints is the righteous acts of the saints or the righteous deeds of the saints. It's talked about, it's talking about the imparted righteousness. He's talking about transformation. It's not talking about just put to our account There have been some authors, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> thank you, there have been some authors who've taken the position that the wedding garment is imparted or imputed righteousness. No, it isn't. It is the imparted righteousness of Christ. Study it for yourselves, folks. 
all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. If we, and if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Wow, this is Christ living out his life in us. See? The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a continual life of continual obedience, pardon me. Our life will be a life of continual obedience and through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Oh, I'm sorry. What did I do here? Should let Mike do it like... There we go. This last part again. I'm sorry. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion of, with God, sin will become what? Hateful to us. Amen. I began to look at myself in the mirror and I got irritated. I get irritated still. Do you know why? I realize I'm not walking in the footsteps of Christ. I remember I lost my patience yesterday. I blew it last week. I'll probably fail again tomorrow or next week. That's what's going on. I say, "Uh uh-oh, am I going to live long enough to get the robe on? Will I be able to Make it before the smoke rises. If Jesus came today, would I be ready? And we begin to wonder. It isn't in it isn't irritation, it's reflection. We're looking at ourselves in our own hearts, right? Is that what's going on? So in this story I'd like to remind you that the invitation represents justification. Because of the cross, we're all invited to the wedding. And the garment, the robe, represents sanctification, obedience, transformation, victory, overcoming. And before Jesus comes, the king takes a look to see if we have that on. Ouch. Now our evangelical friends about this time, they say, there you go again, you Adventists. Adding something to the cross. In fact, they've been after us for a long time. You Adventists, you keep saying that you have to obey, you know, in order to get to heaven. So you're adding something to the cross. You're making, keeping the Ten Commandments the cause of our salvation. 
And I'd like to remind the evangelicals that Adventists haven't added anything. Jesus told a story. This isn't my story. This isn't an Adventist story. Jesus is the one that told the story. And if you compare Scripture with Scripture... You know that even though the robe has nothing to do with you getting into the wedding, if you don't have it on, you're going to get thrown out. That's biblical, isn't it? So how are we going to deal with that? I'd like to pause here long enough just to give you a few lines from the book, Christ's Object Lessons, which... Is very clear on this story. Of those who accepted the invitation, there are some who thought only of benefiting themselves. They came to share the provisions of the feast, but had no desire to honor the king by putting on the garment. In other words, here we have people who are anxious to get to heaven, but that's all. They want to get to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but they're not interested in the other things that God has prepared or made provision for. I'd like to remind you, friends, if my only reason for being a Christian is to get to heaven, if my only reason for being a Christian is to get to heaven, I probably won't be there. By the wedding garment in the parable is represented the pure spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. This is not using words like the pure spotless character the true followers of Christ must possess or should possess or have to possess. Most of us are tired of that tyranny of the must That was one reason I think I walked away. I thought I had to keep the commandments in my mistaken way. As I was growing up, I, I thought, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be good. And I think I'm getting ahead of myself because I bring this out. Our goodness, well, I'll go get back to the Noah is simply stating the fact, while the wedding garment and apparel is representing, represents the pure spotless character which Christ's followers will possess. I used to misunderstand John 14 where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I thought that was a command and when I found out more accurate meaning, it's not a command, it's a promise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't that a beautiful promise like that, when you look at it like that? It gives us freedom that we never knew we had. I was under the impression growing up, uh, here I started getting ahead of myself, that if I wanted to go to heaven, I had to be good. Folks, 
And I hold nothing against any of the people that raised me. Good Christians. In fact, I'll probably surprise them by being there, hopefully. Because when they passed away, I was far from the Lord. Thank you, God, for your long suffering. I'm sorry. Thank you, Jesus, for wooing me back. Man, I'm hard-headed, you know this? And I always say, well, I'm a hard-headed German. Folks, Christ can bring anybody. He can bring anybody back. Never tell your children that. Never tell them, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be good. Help them to get acquainted with Jesus. Help them to make him their best friend. He's our, he's, he's our best friend now, my wife and I. I probably shouldn't say this, but we have a threesome in our house. And it's beautiful. Jesus, my wife and I. Now notice this. This is out of Christ's Object Lesson. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Which means that this robe is all of Christ and none of me. And yet we hear constantly cooperation, cooperation. God doesn't do for us what he expects us to do for ourselves. God helps those who help themselves. Quoting Poor Richard's Almanac instead of scripture. I have news for you. God helps those who help themselves is not in scripture. Do you know what is in Scripture? God helps those who cannot help themselves. In fact, those are the only ones that God can help. Those who cannot help themselves and they know it. This is a very important point that has escaped many of us. It escaped me for many years. But it's all of Jesus one of the reasons we do not, we haven't experienced the robe is because we've tried to weave it ourselves. That was my problem. And to some extent, tried to give ourselves, get ourselves into the picture. And in that sense, we, come, we become borderline new age people. And as you know, new age has its basic foundation is you are big enough to be your own God. You can do it yourself. I remember hearing that a lot back a number of years ago. There's a more subtle form of that in the remnant and Laodicean. 
That is, God, I'm a good person. I don't need you. I don't, I don't smoke, drink, dance, or gamble. And I wouldn't think of doing anything wrong. And we go along day by day, living our daily lives, spotless lives apart from Jesus. This is our big problem. And a teacher once said over and over, one of these days it's going to, there's going to be a great revival in the church, but it's not going to be based upon people getting up and confessing all their heinous sins. It's going to be based upon the realization that we've been living our spotless lives apart from Jesus. That's what sin is. That's the whole issue in sin. Sin is not having enough time on our knees for Jesus. Sin is not spending enough time before God's open word. And, I, and this doesn't apply to Pastor John, I don't think, but sin is the preacher spending so much time doing the work of the Lord, he forgets the Lord of the work. And I want to tell you, I think Pastor John is a very, very godly man. I think we're very fortunate to have him as our pastor here, but... This could be anybody. This could be everybody. This could be me. Oh, boy. Oh, Lord. That's what sin is, though. Sin is living apart from Jesus day by day. Sin is having nothing more for Jesus than a text for today. With my hand on the doorknob, getting ready to... As I was brought out in our <laughs> lesson study this morning... You know, well, I work for 3ABN, so I'm doing the Lord's work. I have, I'm sorry, Lord, I don't have time this morning. And so you go to work because you're doing the Lord's work. I want you to understand, folks, this is, I'm, I'm speaking to myself on this. I'm the main person that I have in mind with this message. The Lord is speaking to me. Oh. That's why my big temptation and your temptation morning by morning is go to the wedding naked. We struggle with it all the time. That's why the Apostle Paul says fight, fight, fight the good fight of faith. But now in answer to the evangelicals that we're trying to add something to the gospel, to justification, is that the robe is just as free as the invitation. Amen. The robe is just as much Christ as is the rest of it. And none of it do we weave ourselves into the picture. Sin is because we have tried to weave it ourselves or to some extent tried to get ourselves into the picture. 
And in that sense, we become new age. All we can ever do from beginning to end in the Christian life is to accept what he has to offer. That's all. And there's a key word in this little statement from Christ's object lessons. When we submit ourselves to Christ, when we submit ourselves to Christ, and this is a little bit of a problem for some of us because we say, well, how do you do that? How do, I, how do we submit? When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Spending time with Jesus. I have a story that was told by a teacher that I greatly admired. I'm just going to call him Teach. And I hope you get a blessing out of this. The story of Charlie starts to put, or it sort of puts a lid on, on this whole thing. What does it mean to put on a robe that has not one thread of human devising? I'm going to re- relate this pretty much as Teach told it. Charlie was a student in Teach's class in Pacific Union College, and Teach didn't like him. The class was arranged with the students on this side, students on this side, and an aisle down the middle, and a row across the back against the wall, and Charlie sat in the middle chair at the end of the aisle and just stared at Teach every day. Just stared at him, and it made him nervous, and Teach decided that Charlie didn't like him. And he probably got into this class by mistake, and he ruined Teach's class. And he would dread going to class because of Charlie. He finally found him teaching the kids on this side for a while, and then he'd go over and he'd teach the kids on this side for a while, Then he'd go under, and he'd go back to the other side. And he didn't want to see him. Then one day when they were talking about some of these things, that Charlie came down after class, and he said, Teach, could I talk to you? Okay. So they went to his office, and Teach said, What do you need? He said, I don't understand. I don't understand this business of righteousness by faith. And Teach thought to himself, if you'd stop staring at me and listen, maybe you would. But he didn't say it. So he said, well, Charlie, tell me a little about yourself, where you come from. And the most amazing story unfolded. 
Charlie had been sitting in prison for murder in the San Francisco Bay Area just a few months before. He knew nothing of God or faith. His mother came to see him one day. She was dying of cancer. She tried to talk to him through the bars, but she couldn't get it out. All she could do was cry. They said goodbye, and his mother left. That was the last time he saw her alive. He went back to his cell, and he cried for three days. At the end of three days, he looked up toward heaven and said, God, if there's a God, if there's a God up there, I could sure use you. Well, to his surprise, his case came to court. They did not have sufficient evidence, and the case was dismissed. And Charlie walked down the street a free man. His girlfriend, with whom he had been living for three years, didn't realize this. He went to the place where they lived, where they had lived, and he found her in the living room having a Bible study with a Seventh-day Adventist Bible instructor. And she was delighted to see him. She said, oh, come in and share in the Bible study. Oh, no, he said. He went into the back room until they were finished. And then he came out and he tried to talk with her about continuing where they had left off. But she wasn't interested anymore. She said, I'll find a place for you to live. And will you please come to the studies? So she did and he did. He came to the studies. Little by little, he began to get something in his mind about Jesus and the gospel. So public meetings came to the Bay Area, and they persuaded Charlie to go. So he went to the meetings, and when the meetings were finished, he accepted Christ the best he knew how, and they baptized him. But he still had four problems. He was still smoking. He was still drinking. He was still cussing, and he was still on drugs. And they baptized him too soon. Somewhere along the line, Charlie had gotten the idea that Adventists didn't go for these four things. So he began trying hard to do something about them. He began working on the first one. Then he'd go to work on the second one. By, that, by the time he got to number three, number one was back in again. He tried in a futile effort. He just worked and worked, trying to get over these problems until one night he gave up. When we submit ourselves to Christ. He looked up toward heaven again and he said, God, if anything gets done about these problems, you'll have to do it and you'll have to do it all. By this time, Teach was sitting at the edge of his seat, and he said, what happened? Charlie said, God did it all. Yes, indeed. So what do you mean? So he took all my desire, he took away my desire, took all of them. But he said, 
I don't understand about righteousness by faith. Teach, he wanted to laugh. <laughs> he said, Charlie, righteousness by faith is an experience, not just a theory. And it sounds like the Lord has led you there. Would you tell the class tomorrow about this? Oh, oh, I don't know. You think I should? Teach said, yes. Well, if you think I should, I will. Teach did, and he did. And the next day in class, he told his experience. Teach was impressed. He was impressed because Charlie talked more about Jesus than he talked about Charlie. Now this is, and this is Teach's words. The thing that bothered me, and I never told him, when he told me about how God did it all, I was angry. I've been working on my sins for years, and here comes God along, or God comes along and just gives it to Charlie. That's not fair. Well, I've heard some people say, well, that's true. There are some people that are so weak, God has to do it all. But those of us who have some strength, we have to do our part. No, no. No, no. God doesn't play favorites. He treats everybody the same. And I had to face the cruel fact that I do not give the gift that God has to offer. When I heard this story, I had the same feeling that Teach did. That's not, man, I worked on my sins for a long time. I did not give the, but I had to face the cruel fact that I did not get the gift that God has to offer until I get to the same place that Charlie was, to the end of my resources. And when I get there, I get the same gift because the robe is just as free as the invitation. Real victory is getting the victory over getting the victory. Some of us try so hard to go to sleep at night, we wake ourselves up. And some spend so much time fighting the devil, they become more like him. And our only hope is to look away from ourselves to Jesus. And everybody, when Jesus comes, is going to understand. Our only hope is to look to Jesus. Amen. And everybody, when Jesus comes, is going to un have understood that. <clears throat> the ones who are at the supper of the king's son and have the robe on will have understood that. Those that don't have the robe on will also have understood it. That's why they will be speechless. Are you thankful for not only the invitation, but for the robe provided? When we get the invitation, we have to RSVP. 
We're all familiar with that. This is the way it might go. Two choices. We are SVP with a note like this. To the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I've received your invitation to be present at the marriage of your son. I pray thee, have me excused. Or to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I just received your urgent invitation to be present at the marriage of your son. By your grace, I'll be there. And P.S., thank you for the beautiful robe. And I'd like to end with this quote that I believe Terry used last week from Steps to Christ. In fact, my wife and I read this Thursday morning in our devotion. (laughs) If you want, you can say this with me. Consecrate yourself to God in the morning. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, take me, O Lord, as holy thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me. And let all my work be wrought in thee. Isn't that beautiful? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your gift of the robe. We thank you so much of your gift, you coming down here and dying on the cross for us so that we can have eternal life with you. Oh, Lord, we long for that day. Lord, I I know we aren't worthy. We aren't worthy except through your blood, through your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you will come soon, but may we all, with those of our loved ones, be worthy in your blood and be looking up when you come. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Please stand for our closing song, number 412, Cover With His Life, 412. of
for this beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you for the robe that you promised, whiter than snow. Oh, Lord, we pray that each and every one of us will be ready. Lord, come into our hearts. Come into our hearts today and crowd out the world. Crowd out Satan who will come and try to sneak in. As we learned in our Sabbath school lesson today, he uses, he's very wily. He's, and Lord, through your help, through you living your life in us, we can be overcomers, every one of us. So Lord, I pray as we go from here that we will remember that. Remember the robe. Bless us now. And bless those who have been watching. Bless those that we encounter, Lord. May we reflect this as we live our lives. Be with us. 
I pray in Jesus, in your precious name, once again, amen.